Hello, everybody, and you're very welcome to the latest episode of the ABCs of Green Politics. I'm John Barry. I'll be joined by two of my other three co-hosts today, uh, uh, Saoirse McHugh and Sinead Mercier. The ABCs of Green Politics is part of a family of podcasts that is known as Left Block uh, and includes other podcasts, which I'd encourage you all to check out, such as The Week at Work with Dave Gibney and Claire O'Connor and the wonderful trademark Belfast, The Worker's Guide to Everything. Uh, as well as uh, Offshore and London Oak, uh, an Irish language podcast. So I'm delighted to welcome today uh, two guests. Um, and we're going to be looking at today's word. E is for extractivism. Uh, it can also be, be for energy, uh, enthusiasm, exhaustion, or any other E you care to think about. And so I'm delighted to be joined today by uh, two eminent speakers on this topic. Uh, our first guest is uh, and I know I'm going to get her surname incorrect, so forgive me, Vincenza. Uh, Vincenza uh, Serafis, Serafas, please correct me, uh, a, a PhD student based at NUIG in the School of Geography, who's looking at anti-extractivist struggles in the Sparren Mountains here in the north of Ireland. But actually, she's based like me in the wonderful County Down, so up down uh, for myself and Vincenza. And I'm also joined by actually a colleague of mine from Queen's University, Belfast. But of course, this being Ireland, she's at the Fort of the Foreigner or Donegal in County Donegal today, uh, Dr. Uh, Amanda Slevin. So before we get into the specific issue of extractivism, what it is when it's a home and bed with a cup of tea, it, its ideological dimensions, the practical outworkings of it in terms of, of energy extraction or extraction of minerals and how communities are, are going toe to toe with corporations on this. Can I ask you both, I'm perhaps starting with Vincenza, uh, about your own, in a way, understanding of green politics, your interests as, as either activists or academics or just as ordinary punters in terms of green issues and how you got interested in uh, the area that you're studying and being active in. So, Vincenza, what do you understand by green politics and how did you get involved and interested in the topic uh, that you're now uh, engaged in? Um, sure. Thanks, John. And thanks for having me on today. It's great to be with you all. Um, yeah, I guess uh, my interest on green politics comes from a feminist perspective. Um, so I'm interested in, you know, eco-feminist and feminist political ecology sort of approaches to the environment. Um, and I sort of see myself as an activist uh, researcher, um, yeah, trying to uh, fit into both of those worlds, um, doing a bit of academia and also being involved in activist movements. Like I've been involved in the divestment movement um, since 2012 and um, I've worked with communities um, opposing extractivism in Cyprus and in Ireland. Um, and yeah, and worked on um, feminist issues as well, which I see as like deeply interconnected, like period poverty um, and those kind of things. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm coming from. And I guess um, it was working firsthand with communities in Cyprus that were opposing mining um, and then seeing the similarities that were happening in Ireland. You know, these um, case studies, there's so many similarities all over the world um, that really encouraged me to want to study more what was happening at home. Um, and that's when I started my PhD um, in September 2019 uh, in down in Galway. Um, so yeah, I'm just in the second year now of that. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. And Amanda. Thanks, John. Uh, great to hear about Vincenzo's background. So I have quite a similar background. Um, I started out as a community activist over 20 years ago, working in deprived communities across Donegal and understanding the issues that affect communities made me particularly interested in struggles that began to marriage around extractivism. And I suppose that interest was fostered by a cousin of mine who spent 40 years working in Nigeria lobbying oil companies to improve the practices. So from a young age, I was hearing about the actions of companies like Shell and the devastation they were creating in the Niger Delta. So when I heard about Shell uh, in Mayo and the jailing of five people in response to the carb gas conflict, I immediately became interested interested in this was that sparked a new journey for me building on my roots in community development to more about uh, activism around extractivism understanding critically why states 
manage and exploit resources in the way they do, and the implications that has for societies and communities and individuals. So that activa- the combination of activism uh, and academia was quite close to me. In 2009, I began my PhD on uh, Irish hydrocarbon extraction, looking at the evolution of policy and practice through a case study of carb gas conflict. Uh, I finished my PhD in 2013, and, and since then I've been working in academia, conducting research on society and environment interactions through the lens of critical environmental sociology, but also involved in numerous um, climate and, and energy-related movements um, since that time, and, and, and obviously for a long time, for 20 years, I've been involved in community movements, but particularly around climate and energy, I suppose, the last uh, 15 years or so. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, uh, Amanda. I should also say that, that, that Amanda is co-director of the Centre for Sustainability, Equality and Climate Action at Queen's University, uh, and also the chair of Climate Coalition uh, Northern Ireland, which has uh, something that we discussed on this previous podcast, in that we now have a bill going through the Northern Ireland Assembly on, on climate change, and that was uh, in part due to the coalition that, that Amanda is head of. So if I could return then to the, the, the letter of the day, extractivism, and maybe turn to you first, uh, Vincenza, in terms of how you understand this concept, because it's not really one that you often hear in environmental or green discussions. Uh, you know, you'd hear climate change, biodiversity crisis, but extractivism uh, is not really one you hear, and yet it's really, really important. So uh, what's your view of extractivism and why is it an important issue for green politics to understand? Yeah, I think it's super important. Um, I guess, yeah, like the most basic definition of it is, you know, that it's kind of the intensive um, extraction of natural resources um, generally towards like export and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, like fossil fuel extraction and mining that I'm looking at are kind of key examples of that. Um, but you can also include industrial agriculture and things like that um, as well. But I guess what I'm more interested in in terms of extractivism is sort of understanding it as a worldview and a way of relating to the world. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely more than the physical remo- removal of resources. It's definitely, you know, um, an ideology and a model of development um, that's rooted in sort of seeing the world um, as, you know, an object, um, as something external to humans and humans are superior to it, you know, in a way. Um, And it's as well about, you know, extracting um, from places that have very interconnected socio and ecological webs of connection, you know, without any sort of consideration of the relationships in that place. Um, and yeah, it's definitely, I see it as well as very much rooted in like systems of oppression, like capitalism, patriarchy and colonialism. Like you can't talk about extractivism without um, colonialism. Um, and, you know, I think extractivism like, comes from Latin America. Um, and I think it's important to credit, you know, the critical thinkers and activists in Latin America um, who, you know, um, have really been, you know, it's a continent really that has been ravaged by extractivism like nowhere else. Um, and yeah, like, you know, from the European colonial period and, and then like the neoliberal reform in the 90s as well. Um, so, yeah, but um, I think what they're talking about whenever they talk about extractivism as well, which I think is important to bring to the debate, is that um, to talk about extractivism is, you know, to critique it, but also to talk about post-extractivism and alternatives to it. Um, and I think that's a really important part of the conversation as well. Um uh, yeah, and we know that frontline communities are um, all over the world resisting extractivism and living living the alternatives and the solutions to it. And it's very important to lift up those voices and learn from and act in solidarity with them. And I think it's interesting that, you know, it's not so much part of the mainstream sort of green politics kind of conversation as much as it should be, um, because it's a huge part of climate justice as well. You know, as we transition to renewables, um, we see this push um, on, you know, critical metals for for that transition to happen and you know that's just going to lead you know if we don't uh, look at the inequality of the system <laughs> and transition from fossil fuels to the mining industry uh, we're leaving all of these um, injustices and systems of oppression that extractivism is based on untouched um 
but yeah, I'm happy to get in, into more of those more complex things uh, as we go on. Um, but yeah, we'd like to hear what Amanda has to say as well. Aye, that's great. I mean, it's not only that we've taken the potato from South America, but actually we need to take this concept of extractivism and integrate it into our, 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 our thinking and activism. So Amanda, and I know you've written about this quite extensively, particularly in the context of, of Ireland um, and around petroleum extraction. But how would you, you know, add to what Vincenzo said in terms of the importance of extractivism and particularly in relation to struggles around ownership control of resources? Yeah, I think extractivism is deeply embedded in obviously how our societies function. We often don't think about where our energy comes from. We don't think about control, ownership, production, consumption, all these key issues that are associated with extractivism. And extractivism is deeply and indelibly connected with these socioeconomic and ecological processes, um, beginning with how we understand our relationship to nature and natural resources. You know, we have, and, and it's been fostered through the evolution of capitalist states, this disconnect between nature and society, where we see resources as there as public goods, uh, or not as public goods, but as objects that can be privatised and can be owned by people to make massive amounts of property, profit, regardless of the, con the consequences that has for community societies or wider environment. So we have the separation between nature and humanity, this understanding and this ex extractive imperative that these resources should be privatised, that they should be extracted, that they should be used to produce energy. Um, and, and with that then, a myriad um, amount of, of consequences at different levels of our society, we can see that the level of the state and these drives to extract resources as much as we can in the context of gas and oil in Ireland, you know, even with limited resources, there's such an inherent push within the state, particularly since independence, to, to allow the state to uh, firstly, assert ownership over natural resources of the state to then use that and, and to privatise that to allow uh, private shareholders to make profit upon that. Um, and, and that drive is deeply embedded within capitalism and it has massive intersectional components as well because we know that it is the working classes that experience some of the worst consequences of extractivism. Women, uh, ethnic minorities, all these um, groups are worse affected often by extractivism. So I think when we have to think about it, it can't be separated from broader process of political economy. It is deeply connected with neoliberalism, capitalist ideology broadly, um, and it has consequences that span the macro level of, of how we produce and how we consume energy and the consequences in climate breakdown, through to consequences in communities and those who have stood up against these forms of extractivism, despite the consequence and whether that consequence, you know, if we see in Ireland, jailings, uh, vilification, police brutality, we see globally people being murdered because of their opposition to extractivism and the consequence that has for individuals and communities and families. Um, so it's quite a complex subject, but it's one we don't often think about or talk about in our societies. And yet it is so deeply central to how we live our lives and, and also to understand these issues as a precursor to understand how we can move towards a more stable future. Thank you both for, you know, for that, for giving us a general overview of the interconnections between extractivism as a kind of a logic of capitalism, colonialism, um, that often goes unremarked. And I think the central issue of climate justice, Vincenzo, if I could turn to you, seems to be quite uh, important in this. And in particular, if I understand correctly, um, there are connections with the environmental justice perspective that you often find, particularly in the North American context, where it's often race and class that are the, the issues there. And certainly from that um, struggles in, in America against, you know, uh, toxic siting of, you know, factories, you know, large scale agricultural production, you know, the Appalachian Mountains being de destroyed. And I do want to talk about how extractivism isn't always rejected by communities. You know, I'm just thinking here about, you know, how many people in coal mining communities in America supported Trump, even though that would seem to fall into a, an extractivist frame. And maybe we can talk about that divisions. Um, and I know, Vincenzo, given your research in the Sperrins, it isn't the case that every member of the community in the Sperrins is against this. And so how do you navigate and understand the, the divisions within communities. So perhaps if you talk about that, um, the ways in which while we can think that extractivism is negative, it's wrong, it's tying us into a, 
a globalized, ecocidal mode of production and consumption. The reality is that for many people, um, they might quite like a bit of extractivism in their community if they're poor and they're going through, you know, deindustrialization or, uh, you know, there's no jobs in a local community. So maybe we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about that, Vincenza, particularly in relation to your research in disparities, that division within communities and how do you understand and engage that, um, that it isn't the case that everybody will be against these, these logics of extraction. Yeah, absolutely. And you're so right to say that about the Sparrows, which is, you know, the case study of my PhD, um, where you have a Canadian um, gold mining company that's seeking to open a large gold mine um, there. Dalridian, we can name them, can we? That's right, Dalridian, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so in the in the local community, you do have some people who, you know, support um, the opening of the mine on, the, you know, the basis of grounds, because this is a very, like, marginalised area of the north, I would say, you know, we're talking about an upland, upland, uh, upland barren kind of boggy area um, where, you know, people are mainly small farmers or tradespeople. Um, and I think some people think, you know, that this is going to create a lot of um, like local jobs, well-paid local jobs. But I think on the other side of that, you know, you have um, a lot, I'd say a lot more people who are against it, um, who, you know, sort of see the kind of long-term effects of it, you know, as um, not being worth the um, the jobs that would come and they would argue as well, you know, that um, the jobs would actually be highly specialised. So they would have to bring people in from outside mainly. And the promises of jobs changes all the time as well. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's a complex issue to navigate. And it's definitely not black and white that, you know, um, everyone's against it. And it has created huge divisions in the community as well, which I think is something that will last for a very long time. This is not something, you know, you have like friends and neighbours and family members not talking to each other anymore over this. So um, it really has um, divided the community. No, it's like the, like the Irish Civil War, you know, in terms of the divisions you have in communities and families. And I do want to talk about perhaps the most famous example of this, the Shell to Sea campaign that Amanda had talked about. But uh, we get back to that. But I want to bring in um, Sinead now, who, uh, you know, may have a view on this as well. So Sinead. No, thank you so much, uh, Amanda and, and Vicenza. Just like fascinating. And I, I love your research as well. I've um, been following your work for a while. And uh, Amanda, your book, um, Gas, Oil in the Irish State, was really, really useful um, when I was working within the Greens to stop oil and gas exploration off the Irish coast, um, that kind of facilitative state, the the fact that there wasn't really any money in the actual production of anything. It was a very interesting neoliberal environment where you kind of had the comprador or sort of the middleman kind of class, which Conor McCabe um, covers in his book, um, Since the Father as well, that that's really where the money was being made in, the, in these kind of, you know, strange shady deals where there was like a, a, a revolving door between the civil service, private sector and government. Um, so that was very, very fascinating. And um, and Vicenza as well, your work um, on gold mining, uh, like keep uh, the women who keep the gold in the ground, I think your article is, uh, um, you can correct me on that, but um, like uh, Troca have done a really good report on women taking the lead um, on climate action. And they have pointed out that in, in 2019, 137 women um, were killed in uh, kind of due to extractivist kind of and uh, extractivist projects, whether it was mining or, or dams, but particularly in Latin America. But um, what's interesting, and um, Vicenza yourself and a group of other brilliant Northern Irish activists came down to the Dáil, uh, I think it was in 2018, um, to discuss the, the impact of Brexit on the border and the creation of a sacrifice zone. And um, what was discussed there was that these companies, particularly mining companies, um, they're actually being kicked out of these, uh, you know, Latin American countries or countries where they've practiced extractivism because indigenous groups and, and local groups, particularly women's groups led by women, um, have really kind of uh, become very organized and have linked into international campaigns. Um, and I think it was James Orr that said that now they're coming to countries like Ireland, which have been facilitative for so long, as Amanda points out, countries which don't have this uh, organised um, kind of resistance or haven't built it up as well, uh, and where the state is so facilitative, it's, it's willing to 
um, as it did with Shell to see kind of bring in <laughs> rather more, you know, a, a particular culture of violence in response rather than lifting up community concerns. Um, and I'd, I'd, um, what we're seeing in Ireland, and Attractive Rin has spoken on this as well, is um, a, a clampdown on community participation in environmental decision making. And uh, we also have a, a huge influx of kind of mining companies, particularly from Canada, and now a CETA trade deal, which the Irish government is hellbent on introducing and the Irish Green Party themselves willing to do a vote fast on, um, even though it's a core plank of Green Party policy to oppose it. Uh, and I'd love to hear your, of your experience in Cyprus, um, in uh, Vicenza, uh, in terms of the gold mining there, because I know that now it's Greece, it's not Cyprus, um, but it's nearby, <laughs> that it was a big part of the Syriza campaign in, in 2015. Um, the opposition to mining was a big part of their, their vote, the opposition to gold and copper extraction. Um, and do you see kind of... Um, that kind of impact of maybe this this shift to maybe wealthier countries or countries that don't have that history of organisation against extractivism. Are you seeing that in your research? Are more of these countries moving to places like particularly the north of Ireland, but also rural areas uh, such as Mayo or Connemara um, in your experience? Yeah, it's, oh my goodness, so many brilliant points you brought up there. I don't know where to start, but um, I think, first of all, to say, you know, that um, what's happening in Ireland at the minute is definitely part of the new uh, European mining boom. Um, and, you know, Yes to Life, No to Mining, which is a brilliant network, which really looks into this, have identified three hotspots in Europe. And you see Scandinavia um, really going into indigenous Sami land. Um, you see the Iberian Peninsula, which is very like the rural parts of Spain and Portugal. And then you see Ireland identified as well. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Um, definitely, yeah, that the, the um, resource frontier is always expanding out and looking for uh, new places to colonize and to um, extract from. Um, and so, yeah, definitely you see that coming into Europe much more. Um, yeah, much more now. Um, and again, there are like mainly Canadian companies as well, um, which is interesting. Um, and yeah, as well, you mentioned there at the border, which I think is a really interesting uh, point about, you know, if you look at where all of the prospecting uh, licenses have been granted, there's a map and it shows um, that they're really concentrated on the border region and west of the ban, which are um, areas of the north, which are, you know, traditionally marginalised and have, you know, legacies of conflict and um you know, that has is really becoming a sacrifice zone. And you can't talk about extractivism without sacrifice zones because you need places and people that don't matter that can be um, exploited um, and taken resources from. And I think as I'll just to like show how um, facilitative um, the Irish government north and south are to this um, mining industry influx. Um, you know, they go to the PDAC conference in Toronto every year, which is one of the biggest um, sort of like mining industry um uh, conferences and they have a special forum called Ireland Open for Business and in that forum you know you have TDs go in um, and you have politicians from the north go in as well and I think it's quite interesting as well that they don't show the border on the map of Ireland at that forum uh, they they sell it as a all island so whenever capital is involved um, the major parties in the north don't have a problem working very um, closely together and on a north-south basis um, so what I think is really important for um, like the whole island is that resistance works as well on this north uh, like all island basis and links up and becomes stronger by working that way because we are seeing like 25 percent of the land in the north has been sectioned for prospecting licenses and 27 percent of the land in the south so these are like this is huge areas that we're talking about here and they're all like, transnational companies um coming in but uh yeah um Saoirse, did you can I just uh, ask a question? And first of all, thank you so much. It's fascinating listening listen to you. Um, just for um, everyone listening, by the way, you're saying that Ireland is really facilitative. Is this tax or is this environmental regulations or what exactly do you mean by that? 
it's both when it comes to gas and oil. Um, and I think Chanda's point about the attention to Canadian companies is really interesting because that's been an historic feature of the state's approach to hydrocarbon and mineral extraction more broadly. If we go back to the 50s, uh, 1950s, you know, when the 1958 turn, the report by TK Whitaker about Irish economic development is around seeing that Ireland would become dependent on foreign national companies to, to develop our, our broader industry. So that was premised on very poor tax turns and also a facilitative approach in terms of environmental regulation. Uh, and interestingly, you know, if we look at 1950s, it was Canadian companies that had the rights to mineral, mineral extraction in Ireland uh, when we began to offer up licensing regimes for gas and oil. You know, the state <laughs> gave all rights to one company for £500, which is in stark contrast to Norway, which was offered £200,000 for a section off their offshore territory. And Norway said, no, we're not going to do that because these are our resources. They belong to our people and we will only allow extraction of them when they benefit our people. So that, I think, Sarah's point goes back into revealing insights to how the Irish state functions. The facilitative approach is built into how the state acts, particularly from independence. The state was desperate to develop as an economically independent state. Uh, and we see uh, through the evolution of the state, uh, the development of, of what uh, Ulrich Beck calls the paradox of a neoliberal state. On one hand, we see a very supportive regime from the state. So low tax terms, you know, in Ireland has some of the worst tax terms for oil and gas extraction in the world. Uh, we see lax environmental regulations. We see tax holidays and a whole other suite of, of uh, attractive measures to make Ireland a, an attractive place to invest, uh, which was the words that the Petroleum Affairs Division used to use to try and bring oil companies into Ireland. But in contrast, we see in contrast to these uh, efforts to bring the state in, this concern with being attractive, uh, the coercive side of the state. We see uh, an increase in state repression and suppression. We see that through how protest has been violently suppressed, uh, particularly since the carb gas conflict, you know, from the jailing of the Rossport Five in 2005 on through, you know, into 2012, 2013 and beyond about how people have been jailed, have been assaulted by police, how they've been vilified. And it's quite interesting, the negative approaches um, from the state and arms of the state towards those who opposed uh, the state-led project, because it wasn't a fight of oil companies and a small plucky community. It was a state-level deliberate endeavour by the state to increase extractivism of oil and gas. And we can see how the consequences that has had. But in contrast to the negative um, actions deployed against those who oppose the project, Shell and, and its other partner companies went a deliberate strategy of trying to develop support from the middle classes in the area, from those who controlled capital. So around the wider Eris region, going to business owners, getting support from that way, getting support of the church um, who hadn't really thought about the consequences for their community. So it's really interesting to look at these strategies, the duality of the state's approach and even the duality of the oil companies themselves. The efforts are going to try and build consent and try to say, well, there will be some jobs. And that's that's a current line across every project. Um, but then if people don't buy that narrative about how they then are met with a whole suite of, of um, negative consequences. Yeah, I think just to build on what Amanda said there as well, like I think there's so many similarities between the Rossport case and what's happening at the minute in Sparrows, you know, and just to bring in the northern context there as well, like in terms of how facilitative it is, you know, the director of Delradian, um, Patrick Anderson, um, was quoted saying that he's worked all over the world, he's been involved in the mining industry for years, and he's never um, experienced a government that was so easy to engage with and that bent over so backwards in, to, you know, to facilitate them. And I think it's interesting to, well, as well to look at the role of the PSNI in what's happening in the Sparrows as well. You know, we're seeing corporate policing happening. We're seeing um, them acting as the private security for the company. They're um, escorting their explosive um, activities and everything. And um, yeah, and I know that uh, PSNI have, you know, sent the bill to Dalradian and they haven't paid it yet and things like that. And then we have Invest in I as well, which are, you know, giving huge grants to Dalradian because they're going to promote like you know, create jobs. And this is like, you know, we're only at the exploratory stage, you know, there's no, um, yeah, it's just crazy really. But um, I think as well, uh, to mention as well, the, you know, how they cracked down on the legitimacy of resistance through this um, criminalization is 
definitely happening as well, where you see um, the community labelled almost as dissident Republicans. Um, that's happened, you know, in the North, you know, so they're playing on this kind of like uh, the tensions already within um, the North of Ireland. Um, and the community think that that rumour was started by the PSNI themselves, um, although they haven't, they're not sure um, about that. But yeah, that was just a few points um, about the North and the similarities. And those go further as well. That deliberate strategy of, of labelling that labeling that was deployed against people in Mayo as well from mm-hmm. a very early start. The Rossford Five were all seen as crazy Republicans mm-hmm. that you couldn't trust them that they didn't have a broad case of some political agenda. But I think that's really important when we're analysing extractivism that we go beyond these strategies of, of vilification to understand that these approaches are deeply inherent to how states actually function. We can't understand them by paying attention to states, their economic and political activities. Um, it's not coincidental that the PSNI has been involved in supporting Delray's activities. That's what's happened in Mayo. That's what's happens all across the world, it happens in Nigeria. We look at how the Ross, the, um, the Ogoni Nine were murdered, you know, and, and, and how the people imagine him when 80 people were murdered by the military police. That's a commonality of extractivism that states are deeply implicated in and how resources are, are used, how ownership and control is first of all constituted within states' constitutions, etc. And then how processes of production um, are allowed to happen. And also states determine largely who, who gets the benefits, who gets the money and, and all the perks that come with extractivism. And we also see that in Ireland's approach, it's facilitative giveaway, as I like to describe it. Um, that's not standard. You know, we look at other countries across the world. Um, and as part of my research for my PhD and in my book, Gas on the Irish State, you know, I compare regimes for extractivism uh, in other countries. And over half the countries worldwide with oil and gas, you know, the states don't do what they do in Ireland or Northern Ireland, the UK, they use approaches to extractivism, which is based on maximising benefits for states, whether it's economic benefits, social benefits in terms of jobs, investment, etc. You look at Norway, which from, from the very early days was saying, we're not going to give away our resources, we're not going to privatise them. We're going to develop an approach which is based on maximising benefits for our people, to the extent that you know Norway used revenues from its oil company, state-owned oil company, from taxation, from royalties, to invest in its global pension fund. And now the Norwegian states, through its pension fund, owns over 1% of all stock globally. That's a very stark contrast to the Irish approach, which is based on very influenced by neoliberal ideology, which is very based on prioritising the needs of capital above the needs of society. And yet that's not the standard globally. Generally, you know, there are other states that are showing, you know, these are our people's resources. Let's develop approaches that are that are around supporting people or at least providing revenues for the state rather than what we see in places in parts of Latin America, seeing parts of Africa and particularly in Ireland where resources are about maximising profits. I, I mean, I can't help but think the image in my head, Amanda, when you're talking about the kind of giveaway lax neoliberal Irish states like gay born in the late late there's one for everybody in the audience almost attitude in comparison to what you're talking about there in terms of Norway I would like to just flag and I'm going to bring in Sinead now but I want to get back to particularly the GPO the Green Castles uh, People's Office and the struggle there and the sparrows and particularly Amanda then about bringing you into that conversation about what are the um, lessons and what are the uh, effective strategies that communities can use to mobilize particularly if the state is behind this that is a big you know, entity to try and struggle uh, against. We already touched upon the the coercive arms of the state, the PSNI and the guards and so on being part of this. But let's just leave that there for a moment. We come back to it. I want to bring in uh, Sinead now. Sinead. Thank you. Uh, again, brilliant points. Um, Vicenza, you were saying that my points were interesting, but uh, lo and behold, they're all your points when you came down to Dublin. So <laughs> um, just to put the, the credit where it's due. But uh, just in, in terms, like Amanda's book was is, is so useful when I was tracking the um, the oil and gas exploration of the Irish coast for the work I was doing with Grace O'Sullivan. Um, it's not only in terms of the, the tax regulations, but having spoken to the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group or Birdwatch Ireland and, and lots of environmental NGOs, uh, the, the environmental regulation of Ireland's offshore uh, is also extremely lax um, in this facilitative approach. So it's not just even from an economic point of view. For example, the way that Ireland does its kind um, its, its testing, um, testing the ground uh, through um, sonar testing um, is also one of the most damaging in 
the world. I think even in many other countries, particularly even Nigeria and others where there has been great damage done, um, it's much, much worse, much more damaging to, to creatures. Also as well, in terms of marine protected areas, very little of Ireland's offshore is protected. It's only about 2%. Um, we were required under EU law to have at least 10% by 2020 and 20% by 2030. That hasn't happened at all, again, because of this facilitative approach. Uh, we're willing to take the fines as a state um, and to map the seafloor as a state uh, rather than actually protect anything. Um, so that's kind of, again, interesting. And there's no legislative backing as well for the purported ban on um, new gas licences or new oil licences drilling for oil. Um, so that's kind of an issue too. But in, in terms of the extractivism, something I've noticed as well is that um, I was told by a few people, I can't say who, but that um, mining companies and the Irish state, the civil service approached uh, trade unions in the Midlands and, and other groups in the Midlands, um, community groups, saying that there's an awful lot of mining potential here um, with the closure of Borden Amona. So it's interesting too that the extractivism that's occurring is not solely environmental, but it's also, uh, like John Tominy talks about this um, in terms of the north of England, that you have these highly skilled pools of people uh, who worked in manufacturing, who worked in kind of um, very strong industries, highly skilled, highly educated in the case of um, the Midlands. And because their communities and these companies have been privatised or sold off um, or, being, or being run down, um, you then have a pool from which you can extract from at a very low cost. And you can take on these workers at lower um, paying conditions and worse worker rights, um, a highly skilled pool, um, just because um, the, the alternatives for them or the, the long kind of unionised work um, has been kind of battered. So th that for me is kind of the interesting context in which we are as well, that these communities are being offered, you know, the crumbs from the table in terms of this mining, which will destroy their local environment um, uh, if they accept it. Um, and I know that communities and the trade unions, thankfully, are actually opposing this, which is a good example there of, of green-red kind of organising, I think. So, yes, I would love to know a bit more of those lessons and strategies for mobilising. Um, I do know that there's Cavan Says No to Mining, who Vicenza have been working with, um, and Fantastic Group Connemara Says No as well. And they've been organising very, very effectively um, to stop mining. But the way that it works is that you have these rolling licences. So the approach of the department of the department is to have a rolling licence every year that's given out. And then um, the local community has to work again every year to mobilise and organise and oppose that licence. And I think the approach of the, the minister um, may be the same as what it was during um, the previous kind of uh, government um, in 2011, which was simply to not sign any licences uh, for oil and gas exploration. However, on the last day when Minister Ryan left office, uh, a Fianna Fáil minister came into place and, and signed all the licences that were on the table. <laughs> so the fear is, the worry is that the same thing could happen again in terms of extractivism, relying simply on, on um, a personality or one person rather than kind of using this time to tackle the facilitative structure, the legislative structure, the, the policy kind of underpinnings which cause this approach um, would be far more useful than requiring communities to work again and again every year uh, to oppose Connemara mining. I know that um, I think that the, the, the department is, is the, the party anyway, um, the minister is set on not signing the licences for Connemara Mining, but what can be done in a more kind of long-standing or um, long-term approach for communities and uh, the legislative sector? Excellent uh, set of questions there, Sinead. And I think I can speak for certainly Amanda and Vincenza, those ones in the north. Ulster says no, they're fracking in the extraction. <laughs> but maybe if, yes. if I've asked both uh, Vincenza and, and Amanda, you know, as I see it, and again, this is maybe an overly simplistic way of summarising some of the points that Sinead and indeed what we've been circling around in this discussion of extractivism, it seems to be a dynamic between uh, capital, business, particularly extractive mining um, industries. We haven't really talked about fracking, but I, I see that as a very prominent part of what we're uh, focused on. But then the role of the state as a second set of entities. And of course, we shouldn't see the state as a homogenous single actor. You know, it, it itself is divided um, and so on. But also then the community. 
So maybe I could ask about, and uh, maybe first Amanda to go to Vincenza, about that dynamic between particularly the state and the community um, in this, you know, either imposition of extractivism with state power, the lack of legislative oversight, as, uh, you know, both Amanda and Sinead has mentioned, and the coercive power of the state. And, and what can communities then do? What are the, you know, some of the most successful strategies that communities can, can use to mobilise against the uh, against the state, uh, which of course include local government. So the state is not just uh, national. So Amanda, that, that kind of state community dynamic in, in the context of resistances to extractivism, what would be your, your, your thoughts in terms of your study and your activism? Mm-hmm. Thanks, John. Yeah, really interesting points. Um, I think if we look at the context of, I suppose I've definitely experienced this of, of both researching and working with aspects of the state when it comes to energy and climate through my activism and research initially around gas and oil and more recently in, in terms of climate. But to focus on, on gas and extraction in, in the Republic, I think that was a really good point about the dynamics and conflicts. Indeed, that's what my book's called, the dyna- understand the dynamics and conflicts of, of, of hydrocarbon management, uh, because there are conflicts. There are conflicts within the state, there's conflicts between the state uh, and, and capital. You know, it's not always you know, a fully, beautifully perfect relationship, as we might imagine. There are some tensions there. And then the state itself, who makes the decisions? And that was one thing that came through my research, my PhD research. You know, I interviewed 30 key stakeholders, including former senior civil servants, former ministers, existing ministers, and really examined that process of decision-making around extraction. And it really raised the question of the role of the permanent states, the civil service, and, and how they make decisions. If you look at the evolution of Irish hydrocarbon extraction from 1950s up to recent time, there's been a co- coherency and a consistency there that didn't shift regardless of the minister in place. Even when Eamon Ryan was minister, there was still a large consistency in how, uh, originally when he was a minister back in 2007, there was a consistency there about how the state manages gas and oil. <laughs> and... Um, you know, some people I interviewed said that's partly because we have within the civil service this desire to maintain things. They're getting expert advice. Um, and, and that is not always shaped by their own insights. You know, the chance to talk to about these mining contracts um, and conferences where people are brought together and uh, great incentives by the states to develop relationships and, and to support companies to come in. And that has been such a hallmark of, of oil and gas extraction. And you see that. You know, I witnessed it myself in the numerous events that I observed where civil servants and, and oil company staff our colleagues, they network, they share information, they share influence. There's an informal level of influence in policymaking that is seen as, you know, you have to extract these resources, it has to be done a certain way. And that becomes what a, you know, a sense of, you know, it's seen as common sense that we extract resources in a particular way. And that's very much influenced by oil industry perspectives. And sometimes politicians challenge that, sometimes they uh, agree with that, sometimes the complexity of policy uh, and energy can be overwhelming and, and they might struggle with making appropriate decisions. And that obviously has massive ramifications for communities. And I think within Mayo, we see that really explicitly, that the dynamics of policy formation were centred in Dublin, so far away from this really beautiful rural peninsula on the west coast of Ireland, the northwest of Ireland, a really isolated area that historically has suffered high levels of deprivation. So decisions in Dublin were made very separate from decisions in this community. But the community is something really powerful. They changed the future and direction of oil and gas extraction in Ireland. Shell to Sea have played a phenomenal role in how resources are extracted. Um, and we can see that from the community. I think if we talk about learning from communities and learning for other communities, I think one real strength of Shell to Sea and, and other groups that have began to evolve from um, Shell to Sea is that they were really open to sharing learning, to de- having a global local solidarity, to making connections between extractivism in Corrib in Mayo, to make, connect that with what's happened in Nigeria, connect that with what's happened in other countries. So it was this development of a global local network. So that was very powerful in terms of learning, of understanding, of developing strategies to resist and to change the process of CARB. So that was one thing. It's about connections and solidarity. But I think also a real strength of the community as well is their commitment to developing their own lay expertise. I remember when I observed the 2010 oral hearing on the onshore gas pipeline, there were local people, local farmers, local teachers, local housewives standing up in front of 150 people saying, you know, go into the dynamics and the minutiae of um, 
offshore vents and understanding the consequences of, of outflow pipes. All this really deep scientific knowledge that they had have had to develop themselves, to be able to contradict the status quo, to be able to challenge processes and decisions being made uh, by the state driven and, and, and uh, guided by oil companies. So that's development of lay expertise. That was a very powerful counter-narrative to the state's position. Um, and that has had amazing impacts. You know, while the project was forced upon the community, the community succeeded in changing the route. They succeeded in changing the gas pressure in the pipeline. They succeeded in changing, um, uh, the, you know, improving the engineering elements of the project. They resulted in actually some benefits coming from the area in terms of the extension of the national gas, gas distribution um, pipeline to parts of Mayo. So they changed things. They had significant consequences on the project. Um, but I think in a certain extent, it was a fait accompli. Um, if you look at how, I'm not going to go into the massive amount of policy changes and licensing arrangements and, and the projects that inherent to this project when different parts of the project were all separate, all of that was facilitated by the state. And in turn, that put a lot of pressure on the community to respond to different aspects of the project, to respond to different areas and develop different forms of expertise. So learning from that community is stay strong, develop solidarity, do your own research and don't give up. You know, that community really did have mass impacts and they have influenced so many other communities across the country. We can see that. Um, I was down in Mayo, I think about 2012, 2013, and there was an event down in um, Solidarity Camp. Where people were coming from Leitrim, they were coming from the anti-fracking campaigns all over the island to come people from overseas coming to the, to the area as well to learn from their struggle, to continue to develop solidarity. So I think there's been massive amounts of learning from this, but it, you know, it is a challenge when you're faced with the might of the state, the might of the state imbued by a neoliberal ideology, supported and underpinned by very deep relationships and interdependency with capital as well. All right, well, I think we have somebody from Mayo who may want to come in here on this one. Uh, <laughs> Sarah and then I'll go to the general because I do want you to talk about the GPO and the Greencastle People's Office there and the Sparron uh, anti-Dalridian campaign. But anyway, Sarah. Well, only very briefly, like I was um, quite young when Ross Bordeaux kicked off and just like, I was, I think, I, I remember dad taking me to protest and I remember being car sick one and just like so bored and not really understanding. But it did make me laugh what you were saying there because um, the water in Ackle during the summer was undrinkable there was a load of aluminium found in it and I had put in a few freedom of information requests but I couldn't really figure out what exactly to ask for but I got a phone call from a friend of mine up in Polythomus ringing me about aluminium and water has there been drilling nearby has there been this nearby because this like and like this man like he's he's great crack but you wouldn't expect it like that his knowledge of like hydrological issues especially around drilling was I have, a, I have a Rima notes in there and I'm like aluminium, you know, H, F, 4, you know, like me trying to take notes to figure out what he was talking about. It turned out, no, that wasn't the case. Um, But like that, he was on the phone to me immediately and, and I can see how like all around, you know, even with the fracking, um, so many people who I suppose cut their teeth at Chelsea really kind of, um, yeah, that lay knowledge was invaluable and not being intimidated by all those documents anymore, I think is a is a massive thing for a community. Aye. Vincenzo, just maybe turning, as I said, to the anti-gold mining campaign in, in the Sperrins, whether I suppose it was echoes of what, what Sinead and Amanda were talking about in terms of the shell to sea, but are there any particular dynamics, you know, not just the fact that one's got to do with uh, the extraction of a resource at sea and the other one has to do with the extraction of a resource uh, in land. Um, maybe just talk a little bit more about your, your research and particularly that community mobilisation and the effective strategies that can be uh, developed for communities to resist extractivism. Yeah, sure. Um, 
yeah, when Amanda was talking there, you know, I felt so many similarities. Um, and yeah, again, like I know the people in Sparrows have learned so much from the people in Rossport and Leitrim and they all connect. And um, as well, I wanted to highlight as well that, you know, extractive interests in the north is not just the the mining. Um, that's just one aspect of it. But, you know, there's the threat of fracking in Fermanagh and there's the dredging of Loch Ney and there's industrial agriculture and there's this uh, petroleum uh, license pending in the Loch Ney Basin. So there's like lots of things going on. And I know that lots of campaigners are working together. They see it all as an interconnected um, issue. It's not just this, you know, like this is happening in our backyard. So we're going to focus on that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, similar again, I mean, the people in Sparrows are so inspirational and I don't want to speak on behalf of them. And they have amazing social media sites and you can like hear webinars and podcasts of them speaking and follow their blog on the Greencastle People's Office Facebook as well. Um, but yeah, some of the amazing tactics and um, strategies that they're using is very similar to um, Rossport. Like they really are experts in what's happening and um, they're doing things inside the system and outside the system as well. So we see, um, you know, lots of diverse strategies happening and um, what I love about the campaign is it's very like um, decentralised and horizontal the way they're organising. So there's about 10 or 12 different groups across the Sparrows and no one's in charge at all, you know, and I think there's power in that coming out of a very hierarchical structured system um, in this kind of uh, looser, more flexible way. Um, and yeah, so we see some residents taking um, high court cases against um, the department and um, Dalradian and winning. Uh, we saw Fidel Mokian, um take a case against the discharge of effluent into the tributaries there. Um, and she won that. And of course, you see this um, project splitting. They come back with three new applications and a whole load more work for the community to do. But um, yeah, that's one way they're doing it. And as well, you mentioned local council as well. And that's been really huge. So um, a local resident actually got elected in as an independent into the Fermanagh District Council. And that's been a huge boost to the campaign, I think, as well. Um, that Donald that. Um, yeah, he's yeah. in as well. And then um, there's Emmett McAleer as well. So there's a few of them now. And I think this is really shaking up politics in the no in the North, for, like from my perspective anyway, um, in because the they feel really abandoned by, you know, the traditional political parties. Um, you know, these are maybe voters that would have voted, you know, Republican nationalist um, parties before and they feel let down by um, those. So, yeah, going in and doing it yourself as an independent councillor seems to be um, an effective strategy for them at the minute. And um, of course, you mentioned the GPO, which is an amazing site of resistance. It's an occupation with um, caravans um, that's been there for over a thousand days. And to me, like that really represents, you know, living anti-extractive ways of being you know it's a site of commoning it's a site of care um it's a site where you can go um, anyone can visit and the the people will like take you and make you a cup of tea tell you their story for three hours you know and um there's such you know um yeah solidarity and care happening there um and that is um, a really important strategic site of the resistance as well. And uh, something that's happened recently as well, which I think is very exciting, is um, that they've managed to, in a way, reclaim part of the commons, in a way, uh, with the Green Road, which is um, a traditional, like, sort of pilgrimage um, pathway that cuts right through the site of Dalradian's proposed waste dump. And this is, like, like the scale's insane. And it's um, going to be a 17-storey high uh, waste dump and tailing ponds, you know, um, like it's really hard to imagine and they want to put that on top of what's a sacred hill to the local community you know it's a it's a mass rock and there's a statue of virgin mary um and you know the community you know they see that as well as like linking back to past oppression with the penal laws and um so there's these kind of like historical oppressions coming through and um different waves of dispossession but um they've been really successful in managing to get this green road declared as a public right of way and it cuts right across um, Dalradian's site and it's just like really like agitating the whole thing. Um, and so like you see people in the local community walking that uh, green road at all time. And there's something about like this embodied protest as well of, you know, putting bodies 
in the in the site and you know reclaiming that and you know I walked it with the um local people when I was up there last and um you know they tell you about you know the flight of the earls which historically went along this way so it's connected to the history and to the ancestors and there's so many other ways of relating to the land and to each other which they're exploring through the campaign and highlighting through the campaign and I think that's really powerful as well um and as well I think it's important to say that you know that frontline communities like they are fighting this David Goliath kind of story but they also have agency as well and those transnational solidarity links are so important um and that's really been very key as well to the um to the successes that we've seen in the Sparrows and they've linked up with affected communities all over the world and they say you know we don't want it here but we don't want it anywhere we're not NIMBY protesters um and yeah they've had like Chas Stewart who's an amazing um indigenous um activist from Standing Rock come over and uh you know um they've had celebration days at the GPO and they've had people from Honduras and Palestine and uh, Indonesia and Malaysia and all over the place so I think that's been really effective as well. Well, thank you for the chance. In fact, you've given us two eyes for uh, a later podcast and on uh, indigenization. It seems to be a theme that, you know, both yourself and Amanda have talked about that rootedness in place and culture and history, but also internationalization in terms of the transnational networks that anti-extractivist communities have, have uh, um, you know, founded. I want to bring in Sinead. Just before that, it'd be remiss of me not to give a shout out to our, um, our sister podcast, Trademark Belfast. They have two linked podcasts with activists from the Sperrins and I think the Loch Ney uh, campaign, uh, I think done uh, by Mel Corey. So if people who are listening are interested in finding out, you know, and these are interviews with activists um, on the ground, go and check out those two podcasts from Trademark Belfast. But Shane, are you going to come in there? Uh, yes, absolutely fascinating. And um, you had some great tips there, Amanda, as well. Um, I definitely agree with you. I think the Shelter Sea protest, the same as um, Saoirse, I was very young at the time. I didn't really uh, fully um, like conceptualise it. But um, the ripples now, having worked in environmentalism, the ripples of it can be seen just everywhere. I mean, from the anti-fracking work to the um, the, the not here, not anywhere, to um, the oil and gas extra, uh, exploration off the coast. A lot of those kind of activists use their knowledge now for th those campaigns. Many of the kind of real wins that we're seeing at the moment on climate um, in that kind of very embodied sort of more connected to um, climate justice and, and environmentalism approaches are coming from people who have had that direct experience in that conflict um, which I know myself and John we, we've written an article recently um, <laughs> yes, uh, on that kind of maybe not quite a split but certainly there is this sort of more eco-modernist for, for want of a better world kind of approach to environmentalism and um, now there's lots of uh, positive things. It's green capitalism, Sinead. Come on, let's name it for what <laughs> yes. it is. Let's name it properly. Yeah, green capitalism. You're right. Because I was thinking, like the the Irish. There's a great page called Irish Modernists, and I have one of their pins which says that all that is solid melts into air. Uh, reusing the Marx quote, and I really love their page. That kind of Irish modernism had that kind of very um, socialist kind of underpinning to it. Uh, having taken uh, work de design approach from the workers' rights movements in, in Norway and Scandinavia. But anyway, that's a digression. <laughs> but yes, green capitalist approach um, certainly is quite strong in Ireland and, and not very effective uh, in terms of working on climate. Uh, uh, you know, obviously it, it could really never be. But um, you do have this strong um, rooted in place, rooted in ordinary people's experiences and rooted in citizen science kind of approach um, ar across Ireland. And, and just as you said, said there, Saoirse, about, you know, uh, people with the experience of, of Shell calling you up and telling you about hydrological movements. I mean, I've gotten calls from uh, working um, in this area, calls from, you know, f farmers or um, sheep farmers or kind of um, uh, primary school teachers, w wonderful ladies who call you up and tell you the ins and outs of these highly scientific, highly, highly um, technical areas, uh, all of which they know deeply inside and out. And it's interesting because 
Um, I suppose Irish politics, having worked in it, certainly has this huge fear of the great unwash, this real approach to the public as this kind of, you know, um, um, uneducated um, annoyance that's out there to kind of make things difficult for us. They don't understand. They don't know. You know, this has to be done. Um, But my experience from environmental work is certainly the opposite. Uh, Often these kind of ordinary people on the ground, on hand experience, have far more knowledge than that kind of green capitalist approach approach. and it makes for much, much better policy, which is why human rights and the environment is always based around, as Anya Ryle describes it from UCC, um, the kind of the, the Aarhus principles of, of public participation, information and access to justice. Because, you know, we, we've discussed it before in this podcast, but the environment can't speak for itself. So the people who are closest to it have to speak for it. Um, and I think that kind of response of the state uh, can be very brutal. I mean, you can speak to this better, Amanda, but um, at the time, because I was young, I didn't realise it. But I know that um, a big reason why kind of analysis of the Shell to Sea kind of uh, didn't happen in, in um, properly was because the Centre for Public Inquiry was shut down. It lost its funding through Atlantic Philanthropies um, because um, Michael McDool, a, a minister at the time, uh, used parliamentary written privilege to link Frank Connolly, the, the head of the Centre for Public Inquiry, um, to the, the, the FARC and the not having his Irish passport at the time because he was linked to um, the IRA kind of working over with the FARC in South America, um, which was quite an egregious use, <laughs> uh, if ever, of kind of political power um, to shut down a report uh, around Shell to see and also about developers in Dublin. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I, it's just, it's brilliant to get to talk to you uh, and to get this kind of knowledge and this work. Um, I, I, it brings to mind as well my own start on environmental thought I suppose was when um, a friend from my ballet class his, her dad probably shouldn't have brought us but she did anyway he picked us up from ballet class and we went to the Glen of the Downs <laughs> and uh, we went to see Earth First up in the trees and we got baked beans in a pot made from the stream and um, uh, I don't think people were too happy about it because they didn't know where we were <laughs> Where, where's that stream with the baked beans? I don't know where the baked beans stream is. In Wicklow. In Wicklow. Do you know the Glen of the Downs protest in Wicklow? Oh, I know. Not a stream of baked beans. That's what I'm interested in the beans. Where's the beans? The magic beans. The magic beans. But uh, yeah, no, I remember thinking that it was like the Ewoks in Star Wars. It was... <laughs> <laughs> it's great fun but um and there's a brilliant example again a lot of those activists have gone on to uh work in lots of climate justice movements um international but uh yeah fascinating and um yeah so great i'd, I'd um lots of lessons and strategies there that we can build on and work as we move forward so very very positive well, well i think that you mentioned the ewoks is my cue uh given that i, I do have a an unsamely resemblance to uh, um, an ewok i want to bring in uh, amanda then give uh, vincenzo an opportunity to respond to Sinead, um what she said or other thoughts and i'm going to go to uh, sersha and then we begin to wrap up because i don't want to keep you too long so uh, amanda then vincenzo amanda Thanks, John. Should I love your story of your first experience at a protest site? That sounds so amazing. Um, I think for myself as an activist, you know, being part of that movement, the Chelsea movement, and being there before I even thought about academic study just changed my world, just changed how I understand our world, how I critique, how I engage. You know, I think one of the starkest moments for me was... Um, but, you know, I've been going up and down to Mayo for ages, like the Greencastle Post Office, you know, sitting in, in trailers, drinking tea with local people down in Mayo, down in the, the Ballinaboy Terminal. You know, this local wonderful welcome by people who who felt and embraced the support from outside you know, that shared learning and understanding was so powerful so to go from that experience of people using different tactics which ranged from 
non-violent direct action, oppositions and plan processes, you know, all the formal and all the strategy they can undertake within the formal planning system and beyond when they thought they had no option but to protest. But you go from those and then the stark, for what I think one of the starkest moments, and I still remember the pit of the fear and the, in my pit of my stomach when I started to see police beating up protesters. I think one of the most scary moments for me was when I was taking photographs of police officers beating up people and they tried to hit me with the baton to take the photo, the camera off me. Uh, and that happened, I think it was 2007, 2006. Um, and so that was transformed. It wasn't as pleasant as even beans uh, at a protest site, but it was a wake up call for me about thinking around how our world works, how our state functions. You know, it problematized Ireland in a way that had never happened to me before. But I think for the people in the area, for them to go through all those experiences for so long, the trauma of that, but also their inherent strength and commitment. You know, it's, it's really amazing that that local people that had lived relatively quiet lives, you know, a lot of people were farmers, a lot of were working in fishing, a lot of traditional lifestyles, to go from that to experiencing the clash of industrialization and extractivism and the conflicts that brings to a local area, to have to become experts in policy, to become experts in um, offshore production, to become experts in gas pressure and chemicals inherent to that, all those pressures on people. And what that does to individuals, what that does to communities, and how do you get through that? You know, it's, it's really been, um, you know, for people who are there, the trauma of that, but also the admiration that I have for them to get through that. And again, Sinead, I think you really articulated wonderfully the impl- impacts that the movement has had for other more recent movements. And not least, you know, the fact that there is a ban on oil extract, oil and gas licensing from 2019, that's not inseparable from, from CARB. That's not inseparable from Shell to Sea and the movement surrounding that. You know, for so long, those pressures have had, rather small, but they have had some impact on policy going forward. Um, so that's just some of the main points, you know, that I want to say. And also to think about, you know, that deliberate strategy by Michael McDowell, Frank Colony's report was fantastic you know to bring together he brought in a, a, an expert Kupovich, i think his name was um from america an expert on gas pipeline construction who came in and analyzed thoroughly the construction of the original pipeline route how it would be constructed all the consequences of carrying gas pressure at that stage was anticipated three times the gas pressure in the national distribution pipeline the report in the carb gas controversy controversy by the center of public inquiry was just the, one of the most important pieces of research done for the movement and it was not coincidental that he was deliberately vilified and, and that pressure was put on um, to remove funding to the Centre for Public Inquiry. But, you know, in conversations with Frank that I've had afterwards, and, and I shouldn't really speak from, you know, for, for, no better man to speak from himself than Frank Connolly, you know, but as he said, it was other research that they were planning, I think, was that the state was even more afraid of than what they'd done with CARB. Um, so those conflicts, those dynamics, um, and also the separation then from local people, how they relate to each other and the language and cultures and processes and interconnections that they have with each other and how that is in stark contrast to the worldviews and approaches of, of those making decisions and policies. You know, it really is when we begin to untangle the different processes and components of extractivism and, and the consequences at the local level, it's it's um, it's fascinating, um, to put it mildly, and I could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Amanda. I just want to bring in uh, Vincenzo, but I can't help but um, think of the fact that and it might be something, maybe not for this podcast, but for another, but from my own view, I think we underestimate the, the power and the corrosive influence that the PDs have had on Irish politics. It's just a small party uh, that had such a corrosive, negative, neoliberalising impact, uh, particularly the mention of Michael McDowell. He can, he can fark off as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, Vincenza. Yeah, no, it's fascinating um, what you guys have just been talking about. And just to add on to that, you know, um, I think, yeah, it's important that we challenge us, like, who is an expert? And um, yeah, definitely, I, it made me think about, you know, the colonial logics that are built into extractivism and how, you know, it's really uh, built on seeing certain areas as, you know, wilderness areas where nothing really matters there. And, you know, the people are maybe just ignorant people. Um, and, you know, it's all about sort of like going in and um, seeing it, you know, as an empty, like, 
place to to conquer and to colonize. I think that's happening in the Sparrows as well. And you know, the director said, you know, that the the local people are just welly wearing sheep farmers. You know, it's there's real patronizing and derogatory kind of um, narrative going on there. Um, but yeah, as well, I wanted to link back maybe if it's okay to a point you had mentioned earlier about, you know, the gendered aspects as well, um, which is what my focus has been in past research uh, with the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, uh, where we looked at, you know, women's experiences of extractivism across the Americas. Um, and of course, you know, there's this real extreme uh, gender-based violence at extraction zones. Um, but I'd like to mention as well, um, slow violence, which is inherent in extractive capitalism. And Rob Nixon from uh, South Africa talks about this a lot. And I think it's really important because, you know, we see this really slow erosion of livelihoods and um, of social reproduction and this is a really like gendered process as well you know and even you know when we talk about ruptures in communities and divisions within communities you know we're thinking about as well you know the emotional labor that goes along with that and how that's gendered as well um so yeah there's there's definitely lots of different types of violence that accompanies extractivism and yeah it's an intersectional um <laughs> approach it's uh, impacting different people in communities um in different ways based on their positions and um it's really important to listen to those to those voices and they really are you know the experts <laughs> on the front line no absolutely i think i have to bring in Sinead here because i've just been informed that <laughs> which i can't get my head around that michael mcdool is against CETA. so Sinead, uh spill the beans <laughs> That, that's just what that, I just wanted to say that, like, to be fair to him, he is against CETA and is one of the biggest voices against it, uh, influenced um, notably by Senator Alice Mary Higgins. But uh, I just want to say that. So um, I hope it's a sign that he's coming back uh, round. So thanks. It's been <laughs> a long journey for him, Sinead. Hasn't uh, it? It, 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 <laughs> he's still a gobshite in my view. But anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll leave it open. Uh, Sir, do you want to come in there? Oh, well, just to say thank you um, to both of you. Like that has been a brilliant podcast. I can't tell, like I'm just currently reading like, for my, you know, for my shame. I'm only getting around to it now. I'm reading. Um, students of the Father now. And I I sort of, at some, in some way, understand why the Irish state, especially just after independence, was like, okay, we need to, you know, be economically independent. But now, like today, it kind of feels like, what is going on? And it's not just, you know, it's not just that we're locked into these historical kind of um, relationships with different sectors or different industries. Like you, you look at now, it's about the new abstraction bill that they're going to, that they're, that's coming through the Iraqis at the moment. And it is like, they're basically like, oh yeah, take whatever you like. It doesn't matter. You don't need to regulate it. You don't need to license it. Have, you know, take it all. It's fine. Um, which will have, you know, massive impact on on agriculture, on people's own wells, on our own drinking water, um, on wildlife. And like, I just cannot wrap my head around why the Irish state still is, like it still is acting like that. Like it feels like it would have to be, you know, it feels like there has to be real reasons. If this is a movie, you know, there'd have to be a clear motive. Um, they'd have to be big fat checks or something but there doesn't really even seem to be. And I suppose what's kind of, in one way, it's reassuring because you know that people opposing that sort of mentality, um, the ranks of that are always swelling. But, but that sort of logic seeps into everything and it's in everything once you start looking at the Irish state. It's even in, now obviously you're not extracting anything, but it's even in how um, the state deals with housing. It's how we deal with agriculture. Um, and you kind of sometimes think like, you know, what's the end goal? Like we'll just have nothing left and we'll all be here in houses we don't own being like, like, I don't know, you know, I hate to bring it all back to violence, but where do these things usually end? Um, and yeah, like you, you would think that in order to sustain this, in order to sustain the kind of um, the social license to behave like that, you would think they'd have, that the Irish state would have to temper that, the kind of the worst of their impulses a bit. They don't seem to be. Um, but yeah, that's just my... Uh, no, I think maybe, Amanda, you might have some comment on that as to why, you know, Asertia outlined that a kind of an extractivist um, development model 
which maybe could have had some historical justification at the you know the creation of uh, the Irish state. But why is this still, given that the low value it delivers in terms of jobs, uh, development, and at the horrendous environmental and other costs? Why? You know, what's the I don't know the the path dependency issue here in a more social science sense? These are, these are great questions, and I'm particularly like a serious question of what's the end goal. And I think, you know, those are very clear, rational questions, but states don't think rationally necessarily. They don't think about their implicit functioning from a rational perspective. That level of internal self-reflection analysis, I think, is very missing. But I think more broadly, the issue is associated with capitalism, essentially, and dominant ideology in the sense of what's good for capital will be good for the rest of us, or that idea that a rising tide will lift all boats. And that's deeply prevalent in, in how the state acts, how it prepares for further activity. You know, it's about do what we can to attract capital. Um, and, and there will be benefits beyond that. If you listen to the logic, that's what you know was applied to housing. You know, that's applied, as, as she said, it's applied to all domains. But that's a capitalist ideology. Um, and until we can change the very prevalent ideology within our society, until we've begun to critique how society politics interfaces between society and politics and the economy and environment, until we can really understand those and and, and project on a way forward and, and change systems from that, we're going to keep making the mistakes that we already make. You know, that we are looking to move away from this. We need structural transformation across all levels of society. We need ways of thinking differently and of acting differently and of creating policy formation that is different to what's gone gone ahead. And, and to do that and to move in this direction, you know, we can see the lessons that are already there. You know, the social movements and the communities that are showing different ways of working, different ways of living, different lessons. You know, if we look at, at policy formation, if we change the process of policy and extractivism and industrial development throughout Ireland more broadly to one which is based on genuine stakeholder participation and decision making, that will help us move towards newer pathways. That will help us move towards uh, ways of working that are respectful of, of environment, of, of inequalities and inclusive of, of different people and different perspectives. But to do that, to make that transition is structural, it's ideological, it's based on processes and, and, and new ways of working. Uh, and to do that, we need a political appetite to do it. And I, I'm afraid the government that we currently have are not really showing any sign of a willingness to move in those directions. I think Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, particularly if you look at their policies over successive decades, you know, the very little difference in their approaches. But we do need a way of thinking and acting because you know, we're, we're living in a climate and ecological emergency. We can't continue the, the way that we're going on. Capitalism is a root cause of, of the experiences that we're now seeing and issues now we're seeing through climate and ecological breakdown. To move away from that requires transformation, um, but we have to. This is We need to do it. And extractivism is, is central to all these processes. That's a wonderful way to end our, our podcast, Amanda. Um, I certainly think we've all learned a lot. And thank you for sharing your expertise and your time, Vincenza and Amanda. I mean, certainly we, we started looking at E for extractivism. But for me, there were lots of other E's that came up, like empire, uh, emotion. You know, and I think that's something I want to come back to in terms of that. And embodied was another E that was used particularly by Vincenza. Um, and energy, of course, was at the back of this. So thank you uh, both for your for your time and my co-host today, Sinead and Sersha as well. And I think um, we can all look forward to our next episode, which would be F, which can be for, well, take your pick, uh, finance, uh, fracking, uh, fatigue, which we're all kind of feeling now in the context of the, uh, the pandemic. Or indeed, maybe feelings uh, in terms of the issues that have come up in a number of our podcasts now about the importance of that embodied uh, feminist gendered approach, which is really central to this. So can I thank you all for, for listening? Uh, you've been listening to the ABCs of Green Politics. Uh, we're part of the Left Block uh, family of podcasts, which includes Null and Ogue, um, The Week at Work, A Worker's Guide to Everything. And we look forward to welcoming you again. So thank you, everybody. And stay safe, take care and socially distance from neoliberalism. <laughs>